This is Archive Atlanta, episode 96, Ashley Ordinance. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Atlanta first attempted to codify racialized zoning in 1913, and the charge was led by 4th Ward City Councilman Claude L. Ashley. Today, we're going to talk about what led to this ordinance, the man behind it, and how the city and state reacted to it. This research spawned from an episode that I'm trying to work on about street name changes, which is a complex topic that's going to take a lot more work than I expected. But in the reading, I found mention of this Ashley ordinance, and I went down the rabbit hole. This is just another one of the hundreds of examples in Atlanta's history where racism and white supremacy weren't just something happening between two neighbors, but instead being codified into law more than one time. Claude Lodewick Ashley was born in Liberty County, Georgia in 1865, just one year after the Civil War in which his father, William, served as a Confederate colonel. He moved to Atlanta in 1888, and just four years later, he married Elizabeth Miller, whose father also served in the war, but as a captain for the Federal Army. I often wonder how they reconciled that one. In 1902, their daughter Margaret Elizabeth was born, and the family settled into life at 267 North Jackson Street in the 4th Ward of Atlanta. Today, this is the corner of Parkway and Ralph McGill, where the Atlanta Medical Center parking deck is. You don't hear much about the Ashley family, but there was a really crazy newspaper story from 1904 where Claude, Elizabeth, and toddler Margaret took their horse and buggy down to Ponce de Leon Springs for an afternoon drive. And as they stop for a drink, Claude exits the carriage, and the exact same moment, a passing train spooks the horse, and he just takes off. Claude has enough time to grab the reins, his family's still in the buggy, and they're just being dragged through the woods. There's, I mean, I'm laughing, but this is not funny. Um, hundreds of spectators watch the horror. Some tried to kind of stand in front of the horse to stop them, but thankfully, everybody made it home okay. By the turn of the new decade, Claude was chief engineer at the Atlanta Brewing and Ice Company, and arguably the most well-loved Fourth Ward resident. In 1912, he decided to run for city councilman representing his ward, and he ran unopposed because everyone loved him. But that's not quite the story. So yes, he was well-liked, but he was also chosen for a specific cause. And today we're going to talk about what that was, but before we do that, we have to back up and discuss the Jackson Hill neighborhood. Today we call this huge swath of Atlanta the Old Fourth Ward, the sole remnant of Atlanta's ward system that I explained in episode 57. But this area was home to smaller neighborhoods and communities, and the history of the Fourth Ward is complicated. Created in 1851, it contained what was described as the two roughest sections of town, the Red Light District and a shantytown. And in 1871, when the city expanded, the ward shifted and changed. But historically, the fourth ward has always had both black and white residents. The neighborhood of Jackson Hill, which is where Margaret Mitchell was born, was an upper middle class neighborhood in the fourth ward. And I don't know the exact boundaries, but across from the King Marta station, where the new natatorium is now, that was all part of Jackson Hill. Now, it wasn't quite Peachtree Street fancy, but it was definitely on its way to being elite. In 1906, we have the Atlanta Race Massacre, and things start to shift, most notably in this ward. Black Atlantans begin to self-segregate, to not have to experience that trauma ever again, but the city also doubles down on Jim Crow legislation. So Auburn Avenue was becoming the center of gravity for African-American business and social life, and that meant more Black people moving to be near it. 
What worried these white neighbors was what they called the quote-unquote encroachment of black residents. But not just any black residents. In the fourth ward, African Americans were middle class, even upper middle class. They were educated, preachers, pastors, masons, odd fellows. John Wesley Dobbs, who I talked about in episode 24, he bought his house on Houston Street in 1909 when the neighborhood was changing from white to black. White people of the fourth ward were most concerned about Morris Brown College. And this is something I hope to do a future episode on, or at least a mini, because most people don't know that Morris Brown started in the fourth ward before moving to the west side and eventually joining the AUC. Today, you can get off the connector at the Freedom Parkway exit, and you're met with at least five lanes of traffic. You can go left towards Ponce de Leon, you can go straight onto Freedom Parkway, or you can turn right onto Boulevard. And just as you make that right, there is today a newer development. I think it's apartments on top. Uh, Condessa Coffee's on the bottom. And then across the street is a red brick building. Where this brick building is, that is the tract of land where Morris Brown was in 1910. Caddy corner to this, where today it's just a patch of grass and a parking lot, that is where Grace Methodist Episcopal Church was. In October of 1910, the white homeowners of Jackson Hill organized inside that church to establish a racial boundary. The idea was to create a zone of 14 blocks that would be quote-unquote safe for white residents and restricted to black homebuyers. Locals like B. Lee Smith and Eugene Mitchell father of Margaret Mitchell, joined with a chorus of complaints that the streetcar had brought in Black people to their neighborhood. I am pausing here so that we can all take a moment to understand that these same complaints are being verbalized today, except we've switched out streetcar for Marta and Jackson Hill for Buckhead. But I won't get in my soapbox just yet. Black people were buying homes on Houston Street, Hilliard Street, Johnston Street, and these residents wanted to put a stop to it. But they weren't really successful. So although convicted in their segregation beliefs, ready with ideas, these group of neighbors couldn't get their plans into policy until they elected one of their very own to city council. So we're back to 1912, when Claude Ashley is elected to represent the fourth ward on the council. Shortly after winning, he started with legislation called the Boarding House Relief Ordinance, which was proposed to relieve small boarding houses from having to apply for a permit fee from the city clerk. Immediately after that, he proposed his segregation ordinance, modeled after the 1910 ordinance from Baltimore, Maryland, which had become the first U.S. city to pass race-based housing segregation. A black couple there had purchased a home in the Druid Hill neighborhood, and their city council took action. It was overturned on its first try, then on its second try, then on its third try, before finally passing for the fourth time in 1913. Richmond and Norfolk, Virginia passed theirs in 1911, and Greenville, South Carolina and Winston, North Carolina, both passed residential segregation in 1912. By February of 1913, Ashley had several cities to copy his newest ordinance, uh, but he also received support and legal A-OK from the city's attorney, James L. Mason, who confirmed that it was identical to the Maryland ordinance, which by the way, he thought was amazing, and accepted by the Maryland Supreme Court. So the idea was we were not going to have any legal pushback. Ashley proclaims that this new law will, quote, soon wipe away the little huts occupied by both white and black and eradicate the breeding places of tuberculosis, smallpox, typhoid, and other diseases which Atlanta is spending thousands yearly to combat, end quote. The basic idea was to separate white and black Atlantans in residential parts of the city. On city blocks that were racially mixed, 
determining factors, aka white people, would decide whether the entire block would be deemed white or black. The ordinance was locally protested by the president of the Chamber of Commerce, um, the reverends from Second Baptist and St. Luke's, and almost all black clergy. The criticism was that this would punish the black man who owns a home in a white neighborhood. Ashley's rebuke was like, please, if I thought this ordinance was going to create a hardship or be unjust, I wouldn't have done it. And then the pastors are worried that this is going to hurt churches. And Ashley then responds to them saying, hey, I already passed this thing, you know, a few months ago that helped black churches with taxes. You know, see, I'm not being racist, I promise. And the reason that churches are featuring so prominently here is that most believed that the ordinance was a direct retaliation to the newest church along Boulevard. Our Lady of Lourdes Catholic Church opened around 1911, and it was formally dedicated in November of 1912. It was built with $15,000 that was raised by both white and black Catholics of Atlanta. Um, Father Rapier, who is from Sacred Hearts, who is a, a white priest, delivered the first sermon. And this racial cooperation, I guess, and and then quote-unquote Negro encroachment was certainly too much for the white residents of Jackson Hill, and I do not doubt had something to do with the outrage and then the ordinance. Councilman Albert Thompson, who was in favor of the Ashley Ordinance, as we call it today, said that any man protesting were all men of means. Basically, you guys can afford to purchase homes away from Negro sections, but the poor white man who needs to buy a home where he can afford it, cannot keep from intermingling of the races. But the ironic part of this law is that it did not prevent domestic servants from living at the property. Alleyway dwellings for servants, which were really common in other parts of Atlanta, were still allowed. This was all about removing Black people from the front of the street, from appearing in any way equal to a white person, from owning a home next door to a white person. Henry Hugh Proctor from the First Congregational Church quotes the Bible when he says, They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make him afraid. And then he says that this ordinance will make it where the black man cannot live in his own house or under his own fig tree. By March, the West End begged to pass the Ashley Ordinance. Their attorney, E. Williams, presented two petitions to city council with hundreds of signatures. And their paperwork stated, quote, The word segregation in the Ashley Ordinance is greatly misunderstood. It does not mean draw a line around a certain locality and confine the Negroes in it. It merely means that when a majority of all the residents are white people, the Negroes shall not be permitted to rent or buy property next to the whites. End quote. Just that sentence makes no sense. But his logic is that we have state laws segregating theaters and streetcars and basically the standard Jim Crow laws. Why does the poor white man have to be punished by buying a home and then a black family buys a home next door? In June of 1913, the Ashley Ordinance passed the police committee and was moved to be presented in front of the general counsel with a favorable report. Eugene Mitchell was there, again, to advocate for white Jackson Hill residents, saying that this must pass because there's an intense feeling in the Fourth Ward, and that, quote, time is near when Negroes will be invading the Ansley Park, Druid Hills, Boulevard, and Brookwood sections, end quote, and that the Ashley Ordinance is, quote, the only immediate relief, end quote. 
Mitchell spoke that he knew for a fact that black people buying houses here ruined the neighborhood, and B. Lee Smith said he had to abandon his property in the fourth ward when black people moved next door. There was a group of African-American protesters being led to the city council meeting by Henry Hugh Proctor. Um, They spoke in front of the council, citing just the unconstitutionality of the Baltimore law and that this would never pass. But on June 17th, the ordinance passed. The only opposition came from three councilmen, but this wasn't a strong dissent. They simply just said they had not had time to study it. And then just days later, two of them withdrew their dissent. From this moment until the start of the following year, mostly black and some white residents of Atlanta were charged with violating this new law. In January of 1914, the U.S. District Attorney said the law was unconstitutional, especially under the 14th Amendment, and that any officer that tries to enforce the Ashley Law can be indicted in federal courts. But he makes sure to say he doesn't want to appear hostile to the local government, and that he believes the Ashley Law to be good measure, one that will be a benefit to both races. So with this legal setback, Councilman Jesse Woods amended the ordinance and reintroduces it. And he changes it to say that basically a white person can't move into a black house um, that had been vacated by a black family and then vice versa. And then with these tiny small changes to the language, the ordinance is once again adopted. And then we have another year of that until it's challenged by the state's highest court. John Carey, who was white, sold a house on Griffin Street to H.C. Smith, who was black. And the house was on a racially mixed block and had previously been rented to a white family. Smith buys it as a landlord to rent to a black family. And immediately, once his tenant moves in, his white neighbor freaks out, uh, calls the police, and appeals to the city. And I wonder if her name was Karen. The new tenant is evicted and has their first month's rent returned, but Carrie, so the white guy who sold it, hadn't even gotten his full payment yet. Leave it to capitalism to transcend any racial animosity, and the two join together to sue the city's segregation ordinance. In February of 1915, the case made its way to the Georgia State Supreme Court, who then handed down the unanimous decision that the ordinance violated both state and federal constitutions. So that's it, right? Atlanta had to have learned its lesson, but it didn't. And while it regrouped for another try at residential segregation, the citizens of the Fourth Ward tried something else. In October of 1915, 200 Fourth Ward citizens met in a room of the North Boulevard Schoolhouse, which was right next door to Morris Brown and today the corner of Boulevard and Irving, where the church is. Their purpose was to organize a Citizens Vigilance Committee, which will, quote, oppose by a determined effort the further encroachment of Negroes into the white residential sections of their ward, end quote. And this specific language, Vigilance Committee, was used all across America. If you plug those words into the newspaper archives, you will see stories from across the country, from the Midwest, from the Northeast, from Florida, where cities and towns formed terror groups like this, made up of local white citizens, whose sole purpose was to remove black homebuyers from their neighborhood. Atlanta did not invent this. It was a tried and true American idea. Councilman Ashley is named president of this organization. Harry Flynn is secretary. Uh, Councilman Farlinger is vice president. And C.A. Tappan is treasurer. All of these men were either in city government and or running large local businesses. Flynn worked for the future Georgia Power, and Farlinger was a real estate developer. 
Four black families had just moved into white sections of the Fourth Ward, and all four were planning to move out, thanks to the intimidation efforts of the group. The committee vowed to keep back the quote-unquote black tide, which has forced the white families to move and sell for low prices. Ashley says that, quote, organized resistance on the part of whites had become necessary, end quote, because the law was stricken down. And we regret it had to be so serious, but this is what we have to do to, quote, maintain the superiority of our race in this community, end quote. They propose a big rally at Grace Methodist where black residents would be given the final warning to move or stay out. Irwin Street on the south and Fort Street on the west would be reestablished as what were called deadlines, which would be the separation between white and black. And any person living inside these deadlines or limits must get out. In 1916, Councilman J.N. Renfro introduced a new segregation ordinance, and it differed from Ashley's in two points. Um, He did it where the majority of property owners on the block, white or black, can determine what it will become. Again, previously it was just a decision for white residents. And then he said if a lot is owned by a black person, he can build and occupy the house. And this was a big thing of why it kept being struck down, basically, If you establish these white borders and there is a black family that owns their house, it's unconstitutional to make them move. So he changed that word. Um, He had violators of this new ordinance would be subject to a $200 fine or 30 days on the chain gang. And it was adopted by city council. Shocking. And Mayor Woodward signs it. Almost immediately after, the police tried to remove Frank Harden of 8 Myrtle Street, which was at the corner of Linden, from his home. He's given 10 days to vacate the property, but he refused and filed an injunction in Superior Court contesting the ordinance. A temporary restraining order is actually granted against the police so that he can live in his home while this case is worked on. In the ensuing months, we have records of two other arrests. Annie Johnson, who lived on Ashby Street, was given 10 days to move after the city attorney, James Mason, investigated and then decided her block was white. Morgan Ryan, who lived at 65 West Kane Street, was also given 10 days. And while all this is going on, Louisville, Kentucky, who had copied our ordinance language directly, is fighting um, their legal battle. So an Atlanta councilman asks to pass a resolution that would send two U.S. senators from Georgia to help. Atlanta was very aware that the fate of the Kentucky Ordinance rested on them winning their fight. By 1917, another local case hit the Fulton County Superior Court where both a white woman and a black pastor are being charged because of the sale of a home on Lena Street. Just months later, the Supreme Court declares the Kentucky law illegal, and our city knows what's coming. Although Attorney Mason is optimistically quoted as saying, "Eh, you know, I don't know for sure until I get this copy of this ruling and read what it says. Of course, it did affect Atlanta, and legalized racial zoning would end in the city at that time. More than a decade later, in both 1929 and 1931, segregation ordinances would make their way through city council and to the mayor's desk, but never get past there. So there you have it, the story of the Ashley Ordinance, Atlanta's first try at legalizing racial segregation. These efforts would have an impact on Atlanta way into later decades when we talk about white flight and urban renewal, but those are all episodes to come. 
Thank you all for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review in your favorite podcast app. Uh, Remember to call the Archive Atlanta phone number, which is in the show notes. And you can also head over to Patreon, um, find out how you can support the podcast and get some bonus mini episodes. Hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.